everyone. Welcome to our Saturday broadcast. Today's topic is perspectives. The, the concept of a perspective is an important oversight in our discussion in Bud of Buddhism, generally speaking. We overlook the importance, or we don't recognize, I think, the importance of perspective enough. Because we miss the fact that it's an important aspect of the concept of a view. Right? When we talk about views, we're overly focused on the idea of a belief. That's an important mistake, I think. Because beliefs are an important part of views, of course, and beliefs have a profound impact on our lives, but not actually as much as perspectives. There's not the same depth to a view or to a belief as there is to a perspective. They don't cut as close to the core. And see, a belief is related to thought, concept, idea. You believe in Santa Claus. You believe in God. You believe in karma. You believe in rebirth. But a perspective comes from the same idea as a view. It relates to how you see the world. But it's much more visceral, much more real, much more uh, fundamental than an intellectual view or belief. And has a profound impact on our lives in, in many levels. Perspectives are interesting. They um, they can be harmless, and yet our harmless perspectives can often cause great stress and suffering when they're taken seriously. And you find this with culture quite often. I don't know if, uh, as Western, many Westerners are not aware of this fact, but if you go to an Asian country and try to cut a fruit or a vegetable with the knife facing towards you, you'll be met with shock and disapproval. You'll be told that it's dangerous to cut something with the knife facing towards you. It happens to me all the time. And I've tried to demonstrate how safe it is to cut with the knife facing towards you to no avail. 
they're ad- people are adamant. I once had someone tell me it was wrong and then kind of, I felt kind of condescendingly uh, implied that I was foolish because for them, their mother taught them to cut with the knife away. <laughs> and I turned around and I said, well, my mother taught me to, to cut with it towards me. This isn't something I came up with myself. My mother taught me the other way. And so their their culture was better, was more valid than mine. And not that there's anything valid, but either way. But it's such an it's such a common occurrence that it makes for a very good example of uh, potential danger. Now that one tends not to come to any consequence, but a very similar one is the. And this occurs in the West and the East, it occurs all over the world. In the practice of writing or um, conducting all sorts of activities with your left hand. My father was left-handed or is left-handed and he would, he, he would have teachers hitting his hand with a ruler when he dared to write with his left hand. And I just found out from the head monk here that it was even worse for him. This was in in relation to this knife cutting thing. One of the monks saw me cutting with the, the knife towards me, and he uh, he said, "No, cut with it away." He showed me how to <laughs> showed me the proper way, and so I started demonstrating cutting, cutting towards me how safe it was. And then the head monk he said, "Oh." What did he start? He said about it that, uh, well, that basically that's all culture. And he, he used the example of of writing with your left hand. And he said his teacher would force him to hold his fingers together and they'd hit him with, a, I don't know, a ruler or something over the tips of his fingers as punishment for writing with his left hand. He ended up changing. He no longer writes with his left hand. He can't write with his left hand. He, he's forgotten how after being forced. And that's, I think, a, a pretty terrible thing to happen over something so meaningless. Right? And lots of perspectives like this with culture. Now these ones are not, besides the trauma of having to learn to write with the other hand, generally not uh, a cause for great suffering in the world. Not that that's not suffering, but far worse are the many perspectives we have about, well, current events. And this is where we start to see that perspectives are not always innocent. They're not always equal. And they're not always justified. Not always justified. Even worse than that, they're, they're not always innocent. in the sense that holding certain perspectives can cause a great amount of suffering. So we have perspectives on climate change. We have been, we have been studying the change in climate based on our greed and overconsumption for decades. In the 80s I was told about this when I was a young person. 
and scientists have been telling us for years, and yet there are lots of perspectives that have, have been convinced that it's, uh, it's harmless. And that we have nothing to worry about in the perspective that there's nothing wrong with overconsumption and greed. That there are no consequences on a personal level or on a global level. But something that I think hits closer to home with Buddhism is the perspectives on the pandemic. And it's very interesting. It, it provides for an interesting talk. Now, I'm lucky right now is that I get to talk and you have to listen, so we can't argue about it, because I know there are many perspectives. But this isn't a debate. I'm going to give you what I think, and you either like it or you don't like it. But I want to be clear about a couple of things. First of all, I think very strongly that there is a proper perspective, and a correct perspective, and an incorrect perspective. I think it's highly unwarranted for people to be anti-vaccine, but it's incredibly um, reckless for people to be anti-mask and anti-social distancing. And there are lots of reasons why people hold such perspectives. There's the suspicion and fear and um, bigotry even that relates to just a sense of not trusting anything that a government says or even not trusting anything even that educated people say, which is kind of scary. Not trusting scientists, doctors. There's not trusting the pharmaceutical industry, which is understandable. Understandable, it's still not warranted. There's no reason to not trust that well, the vaccine, okay, maybe maybe it doesn't work as well as it was supposed to. And yet, quite clearly, it has helped. And that the, the difference between infections among the vaccine, vaccinated and the unvaccinated. But that, that's just, that's actually as an aside, my views on, on what is the right way and what is, what is the right perspective, what is the wrong perspective. The point here, and it relates very much to wearing a mask and social distancing, is that you aren't harmed at all. There's no danger, no potential danger, not even any suspicion of danger. There's no benefit to anyone else except for the mask selling industry the mask-producing industry, I suppose. I don't know if anyone anyone in the world benefits from people's social distancing except for the people who uh, would, would suffer from getting the sickness. And the idea that these are not helpful is, is incredibly reckless and points to a deeper problem. And there's a couple of problems. So the one problem, as I said, is like bigotry and just um, often arrogance. The belief that no one should be able to tell you what to do or infringe upon your rights. Which is a pretty selfish thing to say or believe. Considering how harmful it can be for you to hold that view, harmful to others. It's not about, like I don't 
worry really about myself catching COVID, except for, for two things. One, that certainly people would be taking care of me. I mean, I don't think I could stop people from trying to help me if I did get sick, and then putting them at risk and and taking their time, taking resources away from other people. There are places in America where you have to, your kid has to wait, for, there's an article, your child has to wait for another child to die because there are no beds for your child. That that was an article with an article, the title was or something. I mean, so, and the other thing is that if if any of us get sick, well, we we lose our capacity to to uh, to uh, to function as human beings. So if I got sick and got any of the symptoms that other people have been getting, then that would that would reduce my capacity to function and to help others and and to help myself and to practice. It's just a bad idea. There's reasons why we take reasonable precaution. But the other reason is there's some idea, I think, related to the wrongness of strange and uh, new experiences. And it's presented often as the need for human contact. Um, I've seen people who are unvaccinated hugging each other during the pandemic now, but doing it seemingly with a view that it was important and maybe even more important now that they were posed with the threat to being able to hug each other, uh, the threat of not being able to hug each other, that it became more important to them to hug each other. And it's just horrific to see because you're seeing unvaccinated people putting themselves at risk, putting other people at risk. And it's a real risk, you know. There are, read stories of people who, who can tell you their own experience. You don't have to believe government or anything. That's not just one story. How many people have died and how many people who didn't die are suffering horrific consequences? I might be completely wrong. That's not really the point. There's there's adequate evidence, beyond adequate evidence, and listening to nurses talk about the horror that they have to go through, and and having listening to nurses plead with people to social distance, take their vaccines, and wear masks. Not all perspectives are equal, and some are incredibly harmful. My perspective given this as an example, me stepping out on a limb here to boldly proclaim a perspective, I don't see the risk of that perspective. I don't see the problem with it. I don't see anything that's going to cause suffering for people in holding that perspective, so I'm comfortable holding it. But I would never ignore any major harm that that perspective would cause. If I found out that the the vaccine and we it came to light that the vaccine oops, is causing people great harm, then uh, then for sure I would abandon it. But there's no reasonable cause, unless you read these blogs or, you know, some, some person claims to be an expert writing a blog that contradicts the established science around the world, in, in multiple different countries, multiple different universities studying the same virus. 
and yet somebody with a blog tells you, oh, they're all wrong and it's all a conspiracy. This is unreasonable. This is an important level, but deeper than that, and more important than that, is I hold this perspective, you hold that perspective. It's possible and it's very common, and it's probably too common, for us to hold perspectives right or wrong, but hold them in the wrong way. To see things in a certain way. And, and, and I get, this sort of relates to the difference between views and perspectives. Like, I can have the view that the, the, the vaccine is safe and wearing masks is good and social distancing is good. But what's my perspective on that? Do I hate the people? Do I get angry at the people who are not wearing masks? Do I feel sad or afraid? That's dangerous. That perspective is a real danger to me, and it's a danger to others. It causes turmoil, it causes stress, it causes suspicion. It's a big part of what causes people to uh, react. No. It's, not, it's not being right. It's about your perspective. And And, of course, a good perspective is going to be one that understands and appreciates the reasons behind people's views and perspectives. But we have to ask ourselves, no matter what our views are, what is our perspective? What is our, our outlook? Are we angry about this? Are we uh, accusatory, accusing and, and blaming and making claims that of conspiracy and so on that that are founded only on Facebook posts or blog posts or something like that. Yeah. From and what is our perspective? So this perspective, a really good example is this perspective that masks and social distancing is harmful because it gets in the way of our ability to care for each other. And that sounds, at, on face value, like a very wholesome perspective. Except it, it ignores two things. One, it ignores the incredible harm that comes from spreading a uh, deadly virus, deadly and debilitory, even if you don't die from it. And two, it, it, it simply misses the mark. If I thought that we needed hugs to survive and to be healthy, then certainly I would appreciate that. But there's no, there's no reason why... See, the thing why social distancing and, and wearing masks and so on to me seems incredibly innocent and, and, and a really good idea, a really good way of fighting things. Like not even the pandemic, apparently wearing masks helped with the flu as well. So flu rates went down because we were social distancing where we were social distancing. And so it's just a, 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 a neat idea in general. It's because Buddhism, as an example, has shown we don't need hugs. We, and and we, do, we don't need uh, smiles. 
We don't even need human interaction, which is a shocking and terrible thing to say. That's probably going to get me into a whole lot of trouble. But I bring it up purposefully in such a shocking way to to expose and, and help us to look at our perspectives. Because people's perspective on that is going to be quite contradictory to what I just claimed. You know, um, there are Buddhist teachers who, who encourage and, and promote hugging as an important part of their teaching. And the same with smiles, with human interaction, with that being important. Uh, I suppose it's it's probably a turn-off for many people that we haven't turned on the video for this program, and I've just stopped showing video for, for these sessions because it didn't seem useful, and it didn't seem really aligned with the tradition where a monk would put a fan in front of their face. You know, I don't want to be someone promoting myself. I've talked a lot about myself here, and, and I, I think to some extent that was unavoidable. But the point here is not to personalize this. The point is, if anything, to personalize it about you. This is a reflection back on you. And so when we talk about these perspectives, what is your perspective? How do you react to the things that you hear? Do you get upset by them? Are you challenged by them? And hopefully, do they force you to rethink or to actually to question, to, to bring up your own beliefs and your own perspectives to either reaffirm them or, or maybe weaken your resolve, maybe help you to see that, okay, maybe you're wrong. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Um, from, from anyone's perspective listening to this, there's no reason to believe what I have to say. But, it, but a very useful thing is to be challenged. When I say hugs are not helpful, not necessary, I could even say they're harmful. You know, in Buddhism, we would say they are a reliance, an addiction to sensuality. You don't make a connection when you hug someone. You, you feel uh, appeased. There's the sensual pleasure, and then there's the mental, sort of childlike feeling of safety. But it's a false safety. There's no safety there. There's only a, a being lulled into a sense of security. True safety is independence. Being free from any dependence, any dependence on anything, including other people. When the Buddha talked about association with good people, he certainly didn't mean hugging them or smiling at them. He meant learning from them and taking their example and being an example to each other, supporting each other in your quest to be independent. If your relationships with others bring you to be more dependent or interdependent, that's not Buddhism. That's not this Buddhism anyway. And as far as I know, it's not the Buddha's teaching. Which is interesting because there's a lot of teachers, I think, in Buddhist traditions that would therefore be in opposition, in contrast to what I'm saying. But read the Buddha's teaching yourself. We have a whole volumes and volumes of the Buddha's teaching. See what he said about this sort of thing. Did he tell us to be dependent on others or that the way to, to freedom from suffering was interdependence with other people? He never said such things. He said quite clearly, anisito joviharati, which literally means one dwells independent. It's the most powerful thing if you're not dependent on anything.
It's the most sure type of freedom. Just thinking about how people say that hugs are necessary and therefore we shouldn't social distance. It makes me think of the Asian communities that I've been involved in. I've never seen Cambodian people hug each other. I asked, I talking to the head monk, I said, like, look at Cambodian people. Do they ever hug each other? He said, no, not really. And I said, yeah, and are they emotionally stilted? <laughs> no, not really. Actually, some of the kindest, gentlest, thought, most thoughtful people. Cambodian community is very gentle and thoughtful and kind. Hardworking and uh, not so interested in meditation, unfortunately. But I think that comes from, well, I'm dealing with people who have been through a lot of trauma and are facing the difficulty of being immigrants and so on. Hopefully the young generation will be more settled and able to appreciate Buddhist practice. Alright, it looks like in the um, comments people are talking about this, so I'm not interested in your opinions, this is my time for opinion. What I, was, what I wanted to point out wasn't so much my opinion, it was it was the uh, perspective behind our opinions, because it's very dangerous, it's very easy to have the right perspective, because it could be the right perspective. It's not the case where all perspectives are equal. You could have our views as well. You could have the wrong view. Your view could be very wrong, and the person whose view you're against could be very right. So it's not, oh, well, this is just my my view. Well, that's not an excuse. Your view could be very wrong. But what we're talking about today is perspectives. And so what's actually, I think, more important is how you present and how you cling to your views. Do they cause you to become angry and upset at others who hold the opposite view? Do they cause you to fight and argue? Do they cause you to be thoughtless and ignore the uh, suffering of others? These are important important questions. Which brings us to the most important type of perspective, which really I shouldn't have taken so long on that, but that's something that I don't talk about a lot and maybe needed to be talked about and uh, is obviously on people's minds and has more to talk about. But something much more simple, I suppose, but, but yet much more important, is our perspective as an outlook on how we see reality. Because talking about things like viruses, climate change, um, these are dealing with concepts. And so it's possible to have the wrong view with the, uh, with wholesome intentions huh? because you just are wrong. And those of you who don't agree with me are all wrong, so that's, that's an example. I'm just teasing, but I really do encourage people to consider what is the perspective behind it? Are you really thoughtful and considerate and concerned for the well-being of your fellow humans and so on. Reasonable and rational.
but on the level of reality. There's no room for wrong perspective. Wrong perspective only, only takes place, even wrong view can only take place on the level of concepts. When, you, when your perspective changes through meditation practice, from looking at things in terms of I and beings and entities, even entities like viruses and masks, people and hugging and so on. Uh, when, when, when your perspective lets go of those things, when, when, you look at the, when you look at the world from a point of view of experiences, there's no room for any of the reactions that might come and any of the misunderstandings that might arise. So when we talk about views in Buddhism, the first step to wisdom is right view, but it's right perspective. Samaditi, or it's called Diti Visuddhi. But at this level, a person hasn't yet come to see the Four Noble Truths, so they don't really have what we'd call right view or noble right view. But at the very beginning, the first step, important step is right perspective and that's moving away from concepts people places things to look at the world from a point of view of experiences this is beyond most philosophical um, most religious and spiritual most self-help guides or, or or any path it's beyond so much so many so much of what we believe to be important and true, it goes deeper and it goes beyond. So, so many of our views and beliefs and, of course, perspectives are challenged by this. It's not something you already know, not, most likely not. It's something so um, transcendental. It goes beyond, it cuts through all of our ordinary ways of looking at the world. It challenges so much. It challenges culture, religion, views, beliefs. It challenges our attachments. It challenges our perspectives, our, our, our um, valuations of things as being important. It challenges what we hold important and dear especially what we hold hold as important. It helps us to see that there really isn't anything that's important in the world. Importance is just an arbitrary attribution. You start to see that, of course, in meditation as your experiences are presented to you and um, are given a valuation by your mind important, unimportant, interesting, uninteresting, pleasurable, unpleasurable. And as you start to see the, the subjective nature of these attributions, that there's no reason why something should be valuable and another thing should be worthless. 
we have no worth, nothing that we experience has any worth. We don't really even have any needs. We think we need this or need that. We don't even need food or air or anything. If we don't get these things, we just die. It doesn't actually mean anything. But we give things meaning. We give, we give to things meaning and value, meaning-making. Buddha called it ahankara mamankara. We make things out to be me and mine and I. So meditation practice provides us a way of looking at the world that is beyond or behind or, or at work below all of these surface um, entities. When we look at our political situations and our social situations, financial situations, look at our relationships with others, our religious and cultural realities, all of these are underlying, are all of our views and beliefs, are, are, they're all underlined by a perspective, or many perspectives, the perspectives that we hold. And meditation deals at this, at this basic level, allowing us to see why we hold the beliefs and views that we hold, allowing us to see our conceit and bigotry, our greed and anger, challenging so much of what we think we know, and allowing us to find answers to many of these surface questions. And we're able to let go of views and beliefs that actually weren't, as it turned out, well-founded and that we're dependent on uh, clinging often. Allowing us to let go and be more reasonable, rational. Rational, I don't know, but reasonable, where we have more greater harmony with others and not so hard-nosed about things, argumentative about our beliefs and views. I'm not trying to convince other people always that we're right, but having a concern for each other's well-being and a sensitivity to our own well-being, to our own mental health. Am I clinging to this? Am I obsessing over this? Am I afraid and letting fear drive me? Am I suspicious and letting my suspicion drive me? Do I hate and angry and blame others and therefore whatever, you know? Is my perspective pure? Meditation provides you with this pure perspective. A long talk. That was a long talk. And I'm sure it made me friends and enemies. That's okay. You're not here to agree with me. You're not here to... There's no requirement that you agree with what I'm saying, but I do require, I will require this much, 
that you agree with the fact that your your perspective is important and that you can't just get away with being a terrible person no matter if you have the right view or right belief or or right idea about things you can be right about so many conceptual things but If you don't have the right perspective, you can still be a terrible human being. And vice versa. You might have the wrong view on, on, a, on a superficial level, believing in things like Santa Claus or God. Well, maybe not God, but, but potentially. You can believe in things because that's what you've been told. Like... If everyone's telling you that the virus gives you, uh, I don't know, Alzheimer's or something, then uh, you could believe that, perfectly reasonable, and still be pure in mind. The importance is that we have a pure mind, and that allows us to be reasonable and appreciative of the work that others do like nurses and doctors and scientists they're not they're not flawless and they're not uh, infallible by any means but you understand that as well and you appreciate the work and you appreciate the evidence and you go with that but i'm not I, people are. I don't fixate on on my views on, on viruses and and vaccines. That's just the wrong message. To, the wrong takeaway from this. The message is: What is your quality of mind? No matter what, no matter you. Maybe you agree with me, and you're very smug about it. Ha! All these other people don't agree with him, but me, I'm a good student because I agree with him. That's a bad perspective as well. Your perspective has to be pure, and that's what meditation provides us with. So. And that will help, that will save so much of the stress and suffering of the world, and it will allow us to cross fences and to realize that we are on the wrong side of the fence. You can never cross if you have this arrogance, this clinging to your own view, and we shouldn't have that. We should be open, listening, studying, appreciating. We should have the right perspective that allows us to do that and not be stubborn holding on to our views based on chanda, based on baya, based on dosa, based on moha. All right, I've talked long enough, wasted all your time. You could have been asking me questions. So let's go on to some questions. Maybe we can go over time today. That's punishment for me talking so much. Questions? So let's begin. Why are liking and lust considered a bad thing for meditation? Should we renounce all the beauty of the world, even watching the beauty of nature in a sunrise? There is no beauty in nature or a sunrise. That's the point. That's what we aren't able to see. Liking and lust have no rational or reasonable support in reality. What is the beauty of a sunrise? I mean, a scientist could tell you what a sunrise is, is composed of. Why is it more beautiful than a not-sunrise? Why, is, uh, why is, 
a rusted out automobile less beautiful than a tree? Why is a smoggy city less beautiful than a forest? Why is a fart less beautiful, less wonderful than the smell of a flower? There are reasons for this. They're mostly biological, I think. But they aren't anything universal. There's no beauty in anything. Beauty is just an idea that we have. It's composed of likes and dislikes. And the problem with liking is that it is habit-forming. The more liking you do, the more liking you have. It's, there's, it, it's a part of the addiction cycle. It's not freed or separate from addiction. And if you like things a little bit, you're going to have a little bit of, of disappointment and, and attachment. Uh, and, and furthermore, you're going to spend your time seeking out because you're dependent on it. So as if, even if you can get what you want, you're going to waste a lot of your time getting what you want. And that has, you know, you've wasted time wallowing in delusion that sets you up for further stress and suffering when you're not able to deal with the world around you, when it changes, when, when it acts in ways that you're not prepared for, because you're not prepared for it. Why? Because you've been wasting your time developing addiction. But, you know, these are, I'm not trying to convince, or I, should, I don't mean to try to convince you of this theory. This is what you'll see in meditation, is the important point. You don't have to believe me, and in fact you shouldn't enter into meditation with this attitude of destroying or getting rid of like, liking and lust. Your attitude should be of one of discovery and investigation. It's helpful to know in advance that what you're going to see is that liking and lust have no basis in reality so that you don't reject it when you do see it. But that's what you're going to see. And you know, I wish for your sake it was otherwise, that somehow you could like and love things and, and it all be fine and, and that being a good thing and a wholesome thing and a beneficial thing for you. Unfortunately, it's not the case. Our liking and our li loving and our lust are a big part of what's destroying the world. If you don't look at how they destroy your inner world, Look at how, as a society, we're destroying the outer world. Climate change should be a, an, you know, and not just, not exactly climate change, but the pollution of our own world is direct a direct cause of this addiction, this increasing need for uh, quicker and quicker, uh, grat ins more and more instant gratification. But don't take my word for it or, or take it as a belief. This is the sort of thing you'll see. So you don't really have to believe what I'm saying. You just have to look. And if through meditation you see that, oh, gee, look at how good liking and lust are for me, then okay. Maybe, maybe Buddha was wrong and I was wrong. I guess we're all wrong. But we've looked, and the Buddha looked, and the Buddha saw and claims that that's what he saw. You can believe him or not believe him, but the best thing you can do is to look for yourself and see for yourself. But the guarantee is that you will see what the Buddha saw. I have experienced a feeling of noting itching so intensely it actually stopped the disliking that would usually follow. What was it? 
A resonance of deep concentration? Or what? How to note this? Well, that's the point, is that there's a chain, um, there's, a there's, there's a requirement, there's dependencies, prerequisites on which disliking depend. And so if you have uh, mind states that are in contrast to those dependencies, then there's no uh, capacity for the disliking to arise. So through noting itching and having uh, intense concentration would be an example. There's no potential or capacity. There's no room for disliking to arise. And there's lots of reasons for that. It sounds like you might have just had strong concentration, which isn't ideal. I mean, ideally, you don't want to force the disliking to not arise. You want to be mindful and see the chain, how it happens. Because once you see clearly, then you change. You'll start to see, see what's causing you stress and suffering. I don't have any meditation teachers in my area. Can you recommend one that is willing to Zoom chat me? Do you know of any, Chris? I can think of two teachers. I can think who, of who the Venerable Yutadamo, who teaches at Sirimangalo uh, International. You can reach that uh, website at sirimangalo.org. You can sign up for an at-home course, and you can meet with a teacher, either Venerable Yutadamo or another in our tradition, Edith Farkas, who uh, both teach the meditation technique or answering questions about here today. I can recommend either. Great. Yeah, I'm, I'm, my, I mean, the answer is our, our organization does that sort of thing. So if you're interested, you could check out our activities. It's all free. We're not, this isn't a money-making uh, uh, endeavor. The wonderful thing about our organization that was purposeful, you know, we came into it with this design is that nobody's here, nobody's benefiting from this. I mean, I suppose I am in terms of being kept alive, but honestly, not really. I could stop doing all this and the community here in Stony Creek would take care of me. But uh, doing this is, this is what we do. It's it's wholesomeness, it's goodness, and we're not, none of this is to make, to, to benefit any of us. Not materially. We're all benefiting spiritually. But yeah, you're welcome to sign up for that. What is the cause of effort? In bad times, I can put much effort, while in good times I fall in laziness. Where exactly can be a little, doable step? Well, really what you're seeing is impermanent. You're seeing impermanent suffering and non-self, really. You can't control it, you're not in charge. You can't decide that you want to always be effortful. And that's an important realization. It helps you to let go. Now, as far as the actually being lazy, that's you have to be vigilant about actual laziness. But sometimes you can just be lethargic. And you should simply note that. But if you are lazy, like uh, kind of disinterested in actually meditating or actually being mindful or so on, you, you have to be vigilant about noting that not lazy or disliking even if it's that far
Is it true that we are manipulating the rising and falling unless we are enlightened? I believe this, and am often aware of it when noting rising and falling. Should I note it, or can I just ignore it? You shouldn't ignore it, but I used to. I usually point out that this isn't really uh, manipulating per se. It's it's a tensing that comes about because of the defilements in the mind. And so the answer is kind of yes, but you're not really manipulating it. You're you're. It's just your state of mind is creating stress in the body, and you should absolutely note that stress the tension. We can't even do something as simple as watch the stomach without tensing. It's a good reason for using the stomach as an object because it shows us this kind of need to control. But the need to control, that just leads to tension. And so you should just note it as tension. Tense, tense. If it feels uncomfortable, you can say disliking. Don't like it. What can be done about sleep disorders? A sleep disorder, usually when someone says this, they're referring to not sleeping enough. But in Buddhism, we would say sleep less, and a real sleeping disorder would be needing to sleep 8, 10, 12 hours a day. It's a sleeping disorder in the sense that it indicates a state of mind that is not very mindful, not very pure or focused or simple, a mind that is overly distracted, overly active. So sleep disorders, as most people think of them, aren't really an issue in Buddhism, and they're, they're, they're much less an issue once they, they aren't um, intellectually an issue. When you no longer believe that you have so much sleep, and when you undertake practices that uh, simplify your mind and appease the stress in the mind, uh, you, you need far less sleep. And so there, there's no reason for the view, the idea that somehow you need so much sleep. So the easiest, the, the, the reason why um, you need far less sleep it is, well, on the one hand, because you have a purer mind, but it's also simply because you don't have the stress of thinking that you're not getting enough sleep. So what we think of as an ordinary, ordinarily as a sleep disorder is caused not just by some mysterious inability to sleep, but also very much because of the belief in the need to sleep. Because believing you need more sleep than you're getting causes nothing but stress. And so, sorry, as as a, the the um, benefit of giving up that view is not only that you need to sleep less, but you have an, an easier time falling asleep. So you, you not only need less sleep, but uh, the sleep that you need, you get it. In, the, in, in other words, you're, you are not kept up until 3, 4 a.m. wishing you could fall asleep and then crashing later on. You get sleep when you need sleep, and your mind is at peace with that. Not thinking you somehow need more, uh, that you need to sleep now, uh, that there's something wrong if you're not falling asleep at a certain hour or so on. There's no stress around the act of falling asleep.
and as a result there's you know, far better sleep and a far better ability to sleep. So a meditator will have a much easier time falling asleep, but as a result of their peace of mind as well, they will actually just naturally need less sleep. So two things you need are one, of course, to practice meditation, but two, to give up the unwarranted view that somehow you need so much sleep because it's not helping you, it's not true, and it's not helping you. I mean, it's true because of things like believing you need lots of sleep, ironically, right? The more you, more sleep you believe you need, the more sleep you actually do need because of all the stress that you cause it. It seems like I automatically wait until I can note sitting because I sometimes don't recognize it for a time before I allow my stomach to rise. How should I handle this? You just It's not you really. Just note that that's happening. Just say knowing, knowing. Let it go. Every time you notice that, just say knowing. I mean, obviously don't intentionally do that, but if you notice it happening, you just say knowing. Just note your awareness so that you don't judge it or react to it. If I recognize that I'm disliking something, but seemingly simultaneously recognize it as wanting it to go away, can I just choose one of disliking or wanting and focus on it? Yeah, either way is fine. If you dislike, say disliking. If you want it to go away, you just say wanting. Should I practice online in your tradition, or should I practice in a tradition which teachings and teachers I am doubtful of, but has a meditation center near me? I mean, I can't actually answer that, because you might be doubtful of teachers that teach good things. Uh, I guess I would say there, there's often a reason for doubt. When you have that doubt, you shouldn't immediately discount it. But of course, you shouldn't immediately cling to it because many people doubt my tradition, and my tradition's the best. <laughs> I'm kind of kidding. But, you know, I believe it's very, very good what we do. But, um, no, no, people doubt the Buddha and doubted the Buddha in the Buddha's time, and there's no question, there should be no question that that is wrong doubt. Your doubt is not always correct. However, it, sound, it seems like my guess would be that you have reasonable doubt and it's not the doubt that's the issue, it's what is causing the doubt. And if you investigate what is causing the doubt and find that it is a valid concern, then that's probably not a good tradition to follow. I mean, practicing online in our tradition is quite valid. It works. It's brought in a lot of people a lot of good results. We even do, in certain cases, uh, intensive courses, but I would caution in that instance um, against sort of a gung-ho attitude that you can do it because it's not easy to do an intensive course uh, remotely. It's not even easy to do it uh, at, at a center. It's a hard thing to do, so just be aware that I guess obviously it's much better to go to a center where you can do an intensive course. But if it just means going once a week to a place versus meeting online once a week, there's not that much difference. 
much more important is the actual amount of practice that you're doing and the type of practice that you're doing, the quality, and generally how you're living your life. So unless you're living at a, at a center, much more important is going to be how you live the rest of the hours of your life. Struggle with race. Every time I see the conflict between peoples of different races on social media, it causes anguish. How do I cultivate mindfulness outside formal meditation times? Yeah, so this is an example of the difference between views and perspective. Like, it sounds like you have right view if you think that races shouldn't conflict, because that seems reasonable, that people shouldn't conflict one race to another. We shouldn't really hold... I mean, race is such a silly thing, after all. We're all, we're all one race. We're all the human race. All we have is different skin colors and cultures and facial and bone structures that are, you know, it's just evolved over time, but there's nothing that we could call race. It's kind of silly. Uh, so that's right view, but it's very different from your perspective, right? How you see it, how you react to things. And so meditation helps to, of course, purify that aspect of things where you're no longer upset or reactionary uh, when people don't agree with you or when people act in ways that you don't think is proper. But your question, how do you cultivate outside of formal meditation times? Well, Formal meditation helps with that because it provides the training that you can use in your life. But training outside of formal meditation, likewise, helps give you a, a habit of being mindful throughout your daily life. So, you know, you can be mindful of movements of the body, mindful of experiences of seeing and hearing. But I would recommend doing some formal practice, preferably like a meditation course with a teacher, to give you the basic training that will provide you with some of the tools that you can use in your daily life. Why is it that all monks who become arhats and suttas immediately exclaimed noting, that everything that has a nature to arise has a nature to cease. That's actually not true. You don't see that every time someone becomes an arahant, but it is common. I mean, it's not that they proclaim that, it's that that is a description of what they saw. Because what, what that's actually referring to is Nibbana, where they actually see everything they see, they have an experience of nothing arising, not mental arising, not physical arising, and you can really, hard to call it an experience because there's no nothing which we would think of as an experience. There is no experience during that moment. It's a complete cessation. There's no memory of that experience. There couldn't be any memory of that experience. So it's just ineffable. Yeah, but but a description of that is realizing that everything, or experiencing that everything arises, he says. And it involves the wisdom that comes from it, the realization that that is true, that there is nothing permanent. You've seen complete cessation, and so you know that, you know, you, you, you know, literally know the, the reality of, of nothing lasting forever. Nothing being always there.
Do you have any advice regarding feeling guilty or like I'm regressing or back to square one every time I don't meditate for a while? Just be mindful of that guilt, the feeling that I'm regressing, etc. Yeah, be mindful of the guilt. Uh, I mean, it is important that you have strategies that help you come back to the practice. Find ways to bring yourself back to practice. But guilt doesn't really help. Reprimanding yourself. I mean, to some extent, reminding yourself can be useful. It's not all unholy. But getting angry and frustrated and feeling uh, worried or sad is not helpful. So just try and note that. But you can't just let yourself get off and say, okay, I'll just stop feeling guilty and everything's good. No. Guilt, not feeling guilty doesn't solve the problem because there's lots of people who don't feel guilty about not meditating and they don't meditate at all. You do have to actually find ways to bring yourself back to the practice. Do you have any advice or thoughts on objectless meditation? No. Meditation takes an object. I mean, the mind takes an object. The mind only exists by taking an object. Experience only comes about through contact. Objectless, objectless meditation might be, to some extent, Nibbana, but not really. Because Nibbana is still the object, technically. But it's not an object in the sense that we normally think of as an object. It's an experience of cessation. That's all you can say about it. The ultimate goal in practicing vipassana breathing meditation is to experience nibbana. Can you explain that moment of experience? Not really. It's not something you can really explain. I mean, I suppose, and I have before, that it's like a dropping out. Like the mind which is constantly clinging. Well, that clinging keeps us experiencing, keeps the chain reaction going. and. If you build up enough uh, objectivity consistently and, and uh, constantly throughout your day, day and night, day and night, you can get to the point where the mind, even just for a moment, lets go. That that clinging doesn't, isn't able to keep up with the objectivity and so there is a cessation experience. And that's the, that takes Nibbana as the object. It's just cessation, letting go completely. You don't even remember it. You won't even remember it. You'll just know that you'll have an understanding, an appreciation that something happened. That something is Nibbana. It could be. It could be not something. It could be something else. So don't overestimate what you experience. It's important just to keep practicing because you see how wholesome and beneficial the practice is. When in an environment that is not conducive to peace, should we strive to leave, even if this will in the short term create more stress, or should we remain passive and continue practicing? It's a good question. It's the sort of question that the Buddha was asked or the Buddha responded. Conducive to peace is, is a bit perhaps um, vague. 
because conducive to peace, if that means conducive to the realization of Nibbana, which is it ultimately should, then of course you wouldn't stay there. But usually when we say conducive to peace, we're actually thinking of kind of the calm and tranquility that we that we so much crave. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, it's not necessarily a bad thing if you don't get that tranquility. It could be a bad thing. But you shouldn't stay in a place that doesn't help you get closer to Nibbana. And quite often the reasons why it's not peaceful are going to be synonymous with that. But not always. Not always. And in fact, there are, there is always going to be a certain amount of stress that we're going to have to put up with and let go of. If we're constantly looking for a better place, and we, we're putting the blame on our external, external circumstances, when really the blame is on our own mind, right? The reasons you should leave is that you're not actually able. It's the, the stresses are just the the triggers around you are just so strong that you're just unable to uh, be mindful enough to not react to them. But a certain amount of reactivity is expected, and so there's going to be always conflict with your surroundings that you'll have to learn to overcome. That's part of the practice. It's just a question of how intense they are. If they're so intense that you just can't, and you just find yourself constantly engaging in unwholesome activities, then, well, yeah, that's probably not the most conducive. It's more about how, you, how they make you react. Because environment, environment can't cause stress. Only our minds can cause stress. How do you meditate on or obtain a glimpse of non-self? I am aware that it must not be sought after, but how do you know that you are in the right direction? Well, you do know you're in the right direction because you see non-self, that's true, but it's much easier to know you're in the right direction because you're being mindful. You don't have to see results to know you're on the right path. That's an important point. You don't have to see results, and it sounds dangerous, right? Because, oh well, and that that you know, I could just be blindly following this. But no, you 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 are able because the the quality of mindfulness is so pure that it leaves you without doubt that you're on the right path, and it should. You should you should think of it in the, from that perspective that my mind is perfect right now. I have no judgment, no reaction, no bias. I don't have to worry about what's going to come from this. And you really shouldn't rely on, on results to bring you confidence, because results are unpredictable. They're going to be interspersed with no results, because we were complicated. But what's not complicated is the purity of mind that you get from being mindful. So try and cultivate that. Try and see the impurities in your mind and cultivate purity. What you will see is the nature of reality. So referring to something like non-self, it's, it's more common for people to have a, a wrong idea of what that refers to or what it means and to, to reify it. So when you talk about uh, meditate on or obtain a glimpse of non-self, you're actually kind of reifying it, most likely. I mean, it's just words, but it, from the wording, it sounds like, like most people, you're just reifying it and creating it into a thing that you're going to see. You're not going to see a thing called non-self. What you're going to see about reality is that the things you thought were under your control are not under your control. The things you thought that had an entity, that were an entity, people, places, and things, are not actually that. They're just moments of experience. 
and the things that you thought existed, like the body, people, are all just in your mind, and they arise, and or the, the realities arise and cease, and they don't permit. There's no. They don't admit to admit of. And they don't. There's no room for those kind of of selves, entities. That's what you'll see, and you'll see that things aren't under your control, that these realities are unpredictable. You'll just see that. I mean, but but what that means is all the ideas you had, or perceptions you had, perspectives you had of things being stable, satisfying, and controllable, are washed away. The the three characteristics are are described in the negative, because they're the abandoning of the opposite. It's the abandoning of the idea of stability, satisfaction, and control, the things that make you cling, the ideas that make you cling to things. And we don't cling when we realize that that's not true, that they're not, they're not stable, they're not satisfying, they're not controllable, they don't, they don't even have a self or a, an entity to them. Do I have to note what's wrong with seeing a thing without labeling it? You don't have to do anything. But what's wrong with it? It's not as useful. I mean, ordinarily we see things without labeling them, and yet none of us are enlightened because of it. The purpose of a mantra is to focus your attention and to stabilize your attention and to purify your attention. Purify meaning to, to simplify it, to create a precision that normally isn't there. Without that precision of reminding us, what, what is the translation of sati, to remind yourself, without that reminding yourself, there's an imprecision, there's the, there's the room for things like conceit, craving, views. You can't just get rid of these just by saying, you know, I'm going to meditate. If you're not actually doing something to remind yourself, to straighten out your awareness, to stabilize it, Mantra meditation is ancient for this reason, because it actually works. It's concrete, it's certain, there's no question. You can tell me, I'm just seeing without noting, but I have no clue what that means. That could mean any number of different things. But when you tell me you're using a mantra to remind yourself of the nature of it, it's quite clear what you're doing, and there's a precision to it. There's a certainty to the result of it. So it's so much more beneficial, from my perspective, for you to do that. Can you elaborate on cessation in vipassana meditation? What ceases? Everything ceases. But what happens in the experience of cessation, what we call the experience of cessation, is that there's no more arising. There's a period where there is no arising because the mind just doesn't go out to the objects. The mind doesn't leap towards the eye faculty or the ear faculty. So there is no seeing, but the mind also doesn't leap to the mind faculty. There's no thinking, there's no conceiving or awareness. It feels like there's no consciousness, in fact, but it's just a complete quenching of the fire. Which teacher is better to teach mind purification? Dhamma Niyama teacher? Or Chitta Niyama teacher? Uh, Dhamma Niyama teacher? Hmm. 
Dhamma-niyama teacher? It's an interesting question. I would say someone should have to teach both of them. But um, Dhamma-niyama is more important because it relates to the three characteristics. And that's most important. Jitta-niyama, I mean, it has an importance for sure. I wouldn't say someone should teach one or the other. Jitta niyami is the is the the way the mind works, and you don't really have to teach that. Teaching the three characteristics is useful because it helps people understand what they're going to see and appreciate what they're seeing, right? Because when someone practices meditation, satipatthana meditation, it can be discouraging when they see the three characteristics, because they thought that they were going to see, you know, meditation was going to help them find what they want, which is stability, satisfaction, and control. And when meditation shows them the exact opposite of that, it can be discouraging. So teaching the three characteristics is very useful in that sense. I don't know. That's, a, that's not a tier one question, I don't think. It was the end of what is sorted in tier one, Bhante. Okay. I'd point out that we're about 15 minutes past the hour. Right. Thank you for taking okay. the extra time. Oh, thank you all for taking the extra time to help. And everyone for your attention. And I hope good behavior in chat. Uh, thank you all for coming out. Wish you all peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. May you have a good week. Sadhu. Sadhu.